Today's Daughter of Change, Rima Zaman, is an author, screenwriter, and speaker. Her books include the critically acclaimed memoir, I Am Yours, and the forthcoming novel, Paramita, A Dystopian Matriarchy. Her memoir, I Am Yours, was adopted into the curriculum of several high schools through an innovation grant from the Oregon Department of Education. The New York Times states that Zaman writes beautifully of the pain and frustration of being a woman in a man's world, an immigrant in a world suspicious of outsiders. As noted by Forbes magazine, Rima's life and career have been a fabulous trajectory of powerful transformation. Rima's essays have appeared in Vogue, Ms. Magazine, The Guardian, Salon, and other leading outlets. She is also the creator and writer of the TV show Snap. A spellbinding performer of exceptional presence, Rima is a renowned speaker and has been performing worldwide since she was six years old. She was the 2018 Oregon Literary Arts Writer of Color Fellow, a two-time RACC award recipient, and has won multiple other grants and awards. Born in Bangladesh and raised in Thailand, Rima graduated with degrees in theater and women's studies from Skidmore College and currently lives in Portland, Oregon with her rescue chihuahua, Fia the Fierce. On top of this amazing bio, Rima is a beautiful human inside and out. The minute I met her, I knew that we were destined to connect. I'm excited to have all of you meet her too and learn how she has become the author of her own destiny. Welcome to the Daughters of Change podcast. My name is Marie Sola, and I'm a firm believer that women and girls play a major role in creating change for our future. This podcast tells the stories of the women and girls who are creating that change, each in their own unique way. Every day is an opportunity to blaze new trails and set positive change in motion. The possibilities are endless. Let's get started. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another Daughters of Change podcast. And I'm so excited about our guest today. I know that you are going to love her as much as I do. And I've been looking forward to this all week. I've just been on pins and needles because I know that you are going to love this amazing woman as much as I do. So Rima Zaman, did I say that right? Yes, you did perfectly. Thank you, Marie. What an amazing intro. I am so excited and honored to be here. Thank you, everyone who is joining us. We're going to have a really special ending to this podcast, uh, but I'm not, I'm not going to tell you now, but you will see what I mean about Rima's gift uh, for writing and for the word, for the spoken word as well. And, Thank you. You know, one of the things that we talked about a couple of times is the fact that as a young girl, did you feel that you had a voice? You know, I did because 
So I believe the voice is a muscle, and the more we use it, the stronger it grows. And I believe we're all born with a voice. Mm -hmm. But in the course of life and life's challenges and traumas, we encounter challenges and traumas that can silence our voice. And in the process of that, our voice begins to atrophy. The muscle of the voice begins to atrophy. But because it is a muscle, we can gain it back by using it. So yeah, I mean, as a young girl, I did feel like I had a voice. My parents were very encouraging of my voice. But things started going awry in my teens once I hit puberty and I became very outspoken about the sexism I witnessed at school and within my family as well. And because I started experiencing different traumas, that left me feeling silenced. So I do believe, yes, we are all born with a voice, but what happens is that the traumas in our life can rob us pieces of our confidence, our self-esteem, and by healing and empowering ourselves, we reclaim our voice and reclaim the agency that we have lost in our lives. Yeah, that's beautiful. Beautifully said. I Yeah, because we are all born with a voice, mm-hmm. but there are outside forces that try to silence it. Definitely. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I mean, I talk about resilience a lot, and that's what I'm known for for speaking about, and I believe resilience is a muscle. The more we use it, the stronger it grows. And it's a, it's a skill set. I mean, I think happiness mm-hmm. is a muscle. Gratitude is a muscle. The more we use it, the stronger it grows. And one thing is I'm often described as being fearless. While I'm very grateful for the compliment, it's misleading and inaccurate. And people say that I'm fearless because, again, I'm, I'm very confident in using my voice. But the thing is, I feel fear every day. What I work on possessing is courage, and courage isn't the absence of fear or the, the absence of threats. It is the willpower to do something, to use your voice, to move forward, to take that leap, to make that leap in the presence of fear. Yeah, it's almost like feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I think we hear a lot of that. There was a, and, you know, I don't know if it's, if that's calmed down a little bit, but there was this period of time where coaches were like, don't feel fear, don't feel fear. And that, you know, is what you're feeling, in some cases, what you're feeling actually fear, or is it lack of confidence? And then, you know, to make somebody feel like having fear is a bad thing, you know, do you know what I mean? So I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because that term gets bandied about. And I think sometimes it can actually be harmful the way it's bandied about. Completely. And like this, it it can be inadvertently shaming for people. Yes, exactly. And and especially like, you know, we need to be so careful with the language and messaging we use for our children because they are just absorbing everything. And until they create a more nuanced mind, they're going to take things on face value. If they hear like, oh, don't feel fear, or fear is a bad thing, that can easily be equated to, I am bad for feeling fear. Um, And then you see adults, you know, their inner child flaring up or getting triggered when they feel fear and thinking like, oh, they they should feel ashamed for doing so. But I... You know, I feel like all of life is just choosing love over fear. And fear is a constant. And uh, we get to choose. Yeah. And the more we normalize it and we make it more accessible, we make courage more accessible and choice more accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like the word that you used, courage. 
or courageous. I, I like that word better than fearless. Mm. Because courage is, is standing up to the fear or keeping yes. your voice within the fear, but not saying that you don't feel that fear. It's, it's, I think it's a much more uh, adequate right. and positive mm-hmm. way to describe that. Um, and interestingly, you know, you, you have such a gift for writing, and we're going to be talking Thank about you. that more, you know, in the podcast. But you actually sort of discovered yourself as a writer or started writing during a difficult period of time in your life. And how did that happen? How did that writing become cathartic for you or something that you used or something you discovered? Thank you. I love that question. Um, So to give people context, I was born in Bangladesh and raised in Thailand. And in my teens, I discovered art, all sorts of art, visual art, performance art, um, narrative art. And I found that I had a talent for acting. And I received a lot of social attention and affection and applause for being a wonderful actress. And I was cast as the lead in every single show in my high school. And I know that art can be used to positively impact the world. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to become an actress. And I applied to college in the United States and I immigrated here for college and I majored in theater and women's studies because I wanted to be in service of art that was feminist and being used to positively impact the world. Then I moved to New York City upon graduation and I started auditioning. I got amazing agents. I got I started auditioning for theater and film as well as modeling and commercials. And I realized that actually, given you know, what I look like, I just kept on getting pigeonholed into these characters that were not feminist and just little tropes that only uh, perpetuated patriarchy and only perpetuated bad and harmful stereotypes about women. And so I was being hired to do a bunch of shows that I, that I know were not in service of empowerment in the world for anyone. Um, and in the course of my twenties, I also started falling into a series of, you know, co-creating and choosing a series of toxic relationships with men. And in my mid twenties, and that all culminated in my mid twenties, when I met someone who within six months, um, we got married and it was a strange, like there, there was no proposal. We never had a wedding. I had, like I said, immigrated to the United States on a student visa, and then my agents had sponsored my artist visa for every consecutive year. And every year I would pay about $3,000 to my immigration lawyer to renew my artist visa that would be sponsored by my agents. And then when I met this man who was very charming and very initially very kind to me and very affectionate and loving and swept me off my feet, he said, you know, how about... I sponsor your green card instead of you going through that whole visa process all over again. And the money that you would use to pay your immigration lawyer, you give it to me so that I can invest it into this house that I'm going to build for you and me and our future. And I thought that was a wonderful, very romantic proposal. 
like not a traditional marriage proposal at all, but I thought it was a great life proposal. And I was like, great. And he was like, I want to be the reason that you're in the United States. And when I was 25, I thought that sounded very romantic instead of entrapment. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I said, yes. And um, suddenly by my own volition, my entire ability to live and work in the United States became dependent on a person, not myself. Essentially, I gave up my power, my legal power mm-hmm. as an artist and as an immigrant. And I was dependent on him. And uh, very quickly, um, his big extravagant gestures of love became big extravagant gestures of control and a need for power and dominance. And things started getting more and more toxic and then emotionally and psychologically abusive. And that's when I started writing. So that's how it all connects. So until then, remember, I only identified as an actress who would occasionally model to make extra money. And I was a nanny and a babysitter to supplement my income. I'd never considered writing as a profession because I truly did not believe I had the intelligence to forge a career from my own voice. I thought that my best use and purpose in this world was to use myself and my body in service of someone else's voice, someone else's script, someone else's writing, someone else's direction, uh, someone else's authorship, as opposed to being the author of my own life. Yeah. (laughs) So I started writing during this time initially to, to counteract the gaslighting I'd been subjected to every day where he would say something on a Monday and then I would bring it up on Tuesday and he would accuse me of lying or making it up. So I started writing things down almost as documentation to keep my own head from going crazy or from thinking that I was crazy or that I had imagined things. And whenever I would say like, you can't talk to me this way, it's, it's unfair to be so controlling and domineering. I don't deserve this. I will a petition for a divorce. And then he would throw it back to me and say, well, if you did that, if you tried to leave me, I would claim immigration fraud and accuse you of using me. So that's when I started doing research into the technical aspects and the legal aspects of transferring sponsorship from a spouse onto yourself to be the main sponsor of my own green card. And I saw that in order to do that successfully, you have to show evidence of mistreatment and abuse, whether it's physical abuse or emotional or psychological abuse. That's like all part of why I started writing down all of this data um, to create a narrative that tracked or just to, to observe the narrative that was happening. And in the process, I also started to ask myself, Why and how did I get myself into this situation? Why have I willingly co-created a situation where I feel like I am trapped by a noose woven partly by my culpable hands, you know, and my complicit hands? Why, as an intelligent feminist young woman who has gone to college, who, who is educated, who came from a loving family, Why did I get myself and how did I get myself into an abusive relationship? Which now, you know, 15 years later, I know it's a very common question that people, when they find themselves in those abusive relationships, we ask ourselves that, like, how did this happen? So I started 
tracing my story back to when I was an infant and then moving forward into present day. And I started to notice all these little and bigger experiences that had occurred in my timeline that had slowly atrophied and silenced my voice. And I was like, oh, so this happened when I was 11. And then this happened when I was 15. And this happened when I was 17 and 23 and 24. And oh my gosh, my voice atrophied so much so that I willingly entered a relationship with someone who had been waving red flags from the very beginning, but I had blinders on. And so those were the two first results of writing is one documentation for my own sense of peace and sanity and for legal purposes. Two, I started to track my narrative and gain understanding and deeper uh, awareness about myself. And three, in the process of doing all of this, I started gaining authentic self-esteem and confidence independent to my physical appearance that I'd never had before. Because remember, my identity previously was braided into um, the service I could provide through my physical appearance or just by being who I am. And this time I was looking at words on the page that were intelligent and thought-provoking that I had written with my own two hands and my brain that were interesting to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I actually have something here. I have talent that goes beyond the physical self. And that filled me with a kind of self-esteem I had never experienced before because it was something that I was affirming and validating by myself instead of an audience or a panel of judges. And so that started to fill me with confidence and through confidence and clarity, I started to say the word I'd never said to him before, which was no. And he started getting um, more and more angry at me because he said, you're changing into a girl that I did not marry. And I said, yeah, I am changing. I'm growing. And I figured out that because he wasn't going to let me divorce him for his own ego or, or love, you know, his desperate um, definition of love, that he was never going to let me initiate that. I had to figure out how to get him to initiate it on his terms. And through my writing, I realized that the psychology of an abuser, the way it operates. And abusers, they thrive on three things. One, the feeling of their victim's fear. Two, their victim's sadness. And three, the feeling of dominance. So anytime he would try to get me to feel afraid or draw my sadness or do something to make himself feel dominant over me, I would just deny him that satisfaction. I denied him my tears, I denied him my fear, and I denied him the satisfaction of being more powerful than me. I just became emotionless. And after doing this for a few weeks, he admitted himself to being, you know, the re his own reason for not being happy. And then one day he called me up while I was babysitting and he evicted me from our life and our home. And I had $60 and a backpack and two sets of clothing and my laptop, which meant I had everything I needed. I had enough money for one day. Um, I had, I was going to make $60 that day from babysitting. I'd given him my previous month's earnings to go toward our bills and our mortgage, all that were in his name, by the way. I had erased myself from my own life, which is a common thing that happens in this kind of story. Um, I'd willingly give up all my power without even realizing I had. 
Um, but I had my, I had $60 and I had my freedom and I had my newly discovered voice or my newly reclaimed voice. Cause remember we're all born with a voice. We just have to claim it. And so I filled with gratitude and I had everything I needed to start anew. From those chapters that I had started writing, I realized that there was enough usefulness in there for me to contemplate using this to craft a new path for myself. I realized that if my writing had given me the confidence I needed to say no and to figure my way out toward freedom, perhaps if I cultivated those chapters into a larger book, I could be of service to someone else in their similar journey. So it was a real shift when that happened because, mm-hmm. as you said, you already had your voice, but you rediscovered it now yet a, really another time, right. you know, and and that ability to say no, you know, you, you can't do that to me anymore. And so how yes. did things shift for you from there? I mean, you know, so... You're out of that situation, but you're really, um, let's say, at loose tethers. You know, you have, right. he has, you know, you you have your backpack, you have your computer, will travel, but still, that's a <laughs> that's a bit of a of a mountain or a little hill, whatever you to climb. So, how did things start to shift for you at that moment in time? Um, you mean just logistically, what I had to do? Well, yeah, or I emotionally, think just like shift for you emotionally and internally, and then. Did that just open up, you know, the universe putting things in your path that you needed to to sort of overcome the immediate situation? I mean, logistically, I uh, spent a few days or a few weeks with different families that I used to babysit for, and they were my my angels and my lifeline during this time and throughout my twenties too. They had always been the constants in my life during those really tumultuous years. And um, then I moved into a condo that my ex-husband owned. uh, And I paid him rent every month, which legally I was entitled to living there for free. But I also didn't want to go through that emotional battle of arguing that with him. I just wanted my freedom and my peace of mind. And so I was happy to give Mm -hmm. him a monthly rent just to get the biggest resource in a human being's life, which is freedom, freedom and peace. And so once I settled into that apartment, I continued going to my auditions and my babysitting jobs. And I poured myself into this new thing I had discovered, which was my writing. And I didn't talk about it to anyone. I didn't share it with anyone for a long time. And I just kept on writing essay after essay or different chapters of what would end up being my memoir one day. And I enjoyed discovering this this force that I didn't know had lived inside me for so long. It was so much fun. And um, and then I shared an essay I'd written about my anorexia uh, with my mother. And I posted it on Facebook when back in the day you could post notes. <laughs> and, and the feedback I got from my friends and family on Facebook were was so positive and they said, Oh my gosh, this is so, this is so intelligently written. This is so moving. This is so compelling. I'd never really understood the nuances of anorexia in this way. Who wrote this? And I said, I did. 
And when I shared it with my mom, she said, you need to send this to Oprah. And I said, well, I don't have Oprah's email address. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't exactly know how to send it to Oprah, but thank you so much for believing in me. And so when you talk about like, what did the universe put into my path that helped me move forward step by step? I had all of these angels who were opening, opening up their homes to me. I had a safe place to live that was through my ex-husband and um, who became my landlord. And um, I had a room of one's own, you know, which is the first time in my life that I had lived by myself and I had the space and I gave myself the space to listen to my own voice and my own opinion and the sound of who I am, independent to the opinion and voices of anyone else. And I really invested in that. And I would write while the kids were napping. I would write on the train, on the subway, on, I would compose things in my head while I was running at the gym. And then I would come home and download that material into a Word document. I really, really leaned in to this burgeoning, this suspicion I had that I had something worthwhile inside of me. And the other thing that's very important in the hero's journey is when you're interrupted by a wise woman or a wise man who gives you affirmation. And that has always been my mother. The wise woman in my life has always been my mother. And she came in at just the right moment to say, I see you. I see your value. I see your voice. I, I see your talent. I think you should pursue this. And my baby sister was about to graduate from high school that summer. And she said, you know what, why don't you come and stay for a while beyond your visit for her graduation ceremony and try writing a book. And that's all I needed. I bought a one-way ticket away from New York and toward Portland, Oregon, which is where we all live. And I moved into my parents' home, my mom and my stepdad's home. And I had this wild theory that by writing a memoir that would trace my childhood, teenagehood, and adulthood, I would heal myself of the traumas that had interrupted my path. I would reclaim the strength and power of my voice and build the power of my voice. And I would do it explicitly by living in an environment of love, where I would see my mom being so loved and cared for by my stepdad, and I would eat her food every day, and I would heal my body, And I would come up with a new life plan for myself that was all around healing and empowerment and using what I am gaining in service of others. And so that's what I did. And I connected, I I wanted to heal my anorexia once and for all. I had started being anorexic when I was 15 years old. It went hand in hand with my life as an actress and a model. And And it was deeply embedded into my identity and the fiction I had created that my main value in another person's life was what I could give through my physical appearance. But once I started to pierce through that narrative by using my brain to create my writing, and I saw that, hey, I had something else beyond the physical plane, my anorexia started to, that fiction started to collapse in on itself. And I, it's almost like because my writing started to fill me with this authentic self-love, anorexia thrives on self-loathing. So the lie started to collapse in on itself, right? My self-love started to replace my self-loathing and the demon could not be fueled by the same gasoline anymore. It couldn't feed on the same cancer anymore. And so I wanted a whole new life. I gave up alcohol. I gave up 
all of my toxic habits. I became vegan in one go. And I wanted that because I wanted to learn and teach myself what it would be like to really love and nourish my body back to health and to love and nourish my voice and my mind back to health. And in doing so, I knew that it would heal my heart and it would set me up with the capacity and ability and willingness to love again in the future. Wow, that's, wow, that is such a powerful testament. And uh, (laughs) seriously, to, you know, moving through trauma and and resilience and all of that, you know, all of your personal journey that you've just discussed, that Mm. all connects to your first book. And you, you know, you referenced that you ended up writing your memoir. I am yours. So Mm -hmm. can we dig into like how that I mean, you're writing, right? Obviously, you've decided to write, it's you've discovered another way to use your voice Mm -hmm. through through writing you've discovered that you have this talent and that you actually are intelligent enough to be doing this because it was something that you questioned uh from what you said earlier so how did this all connect and become a book thank you i there are many ways to tell the story of your life there are many ways to write a memoir and i say that because It's about choosing the voice in which you want to be known for and choosing the voice that will be most useful to your own self in your trajectory in life. And what I mean by that is, so when I first sat down to write I Am Yours, I asked myself, what is my purpose for writing? And my purpose for the book was to offer a book that could help someone else in their journey of healing, in their journey of empowerment, And in their journey of reclaiming their voice and their joy. So naturally, I wanted the voice of the book to be very, very loving, which isn't inauthentic to who I am. That is my authentic voice. And so the opening words of I Am Yours is Dear Love. And the entire book, the entire memoir is structured as a love letter to the reader. Because there is nothing more empowering and healing than a loving voice saying that they believe in you. And that's what I wanted the book to be from each reader. So I I teach a class on voice, on narrative voice, because the voice you use to tell your story defines the trajectory of your narrative and therefore your life. We can choose to tell our story in the voice of a victim. We can choose to tell our story in the voice of a survivor, someone who's just holding on and trying to make it to the next day. Or we can choose to tell our story in the voice of a warrior, Or in this context, I believe a warrior is synonymous with a teacher or a wise guide or a loving spirit, someone who has gone beyond themselves to use their story in service of someone else's journey. And so it's very important for any memoirist or any writer who is looking, who is going to use their personal narrative for um, material for their own writing. It's very important to identify and be intentional about the voice you want to use because that is the aftertaste and the impact you have in your reader's mind and heart. And that is what you will be remembered for. Do you want to be remembered as a victim or do you want to be remembered as a teacher or a loving guide? That's beautiful. And in the process, you know, 
in the whole process of, you know, going through this, of deciding that, you know, realizing that you have this gift and this talent and then taking it to the extent of really kind of laying, making yourself very vulnerable, if you will, because you told not only your story, but you're putting your work out there in the form of a book for others to read. Did you find healing in that whole process? Oh, absolutely. In all the ways, Marie, because, you know, it was the first time that I was, I felt it was so radical. It is so radical for a woman to say, I am going to ask you for your attention to listen to my story. It was, so that in itself is so revolutionary. That in itself is so healing. And especially with like everything I'd been through, you know, sexual assault, stalking, um, abuse, emotional abuse, anorexia, rape, like all of these things in my life where I had been made to feel like I didn't matter, that my body didn't matter, that my voice didn't matter, that my right, that I did not have any rights. So for me to, to have the audacity to say, I am going to grab your attention or at least ask for you for your attention to read my story was emancipation. It was my emancipation from the past. And like that was so healing itself. And then pursuing writing as a profession, it helped me heal my anorexia because it helped me channel the same discipline I used to use to be anorexic, but only in a much healthier way. Mm-hmm. Writing memoir or being a self-driven writer requires enormous discipline. And I have said before in essays, as well as on interviews, that I used to be an excellent anorexic. I had this unwavering discipline that was almost, that was scary, not almost scary, that was scary. And I know that I needed something to replace what I'd been using that, that discipline for. And using it to create a new career, to um, really pour myself into creating something that was so hard in and of itself and to become successful in my career required an enormous amount of almost obsessive discipline. So it, it replaced my anorexia in that way, you know, my writing career. Mm -hmm. And writing memoir as a genre is healing in itself because it helps you reclaim your voice that you lose through various traumatic experiences. And I believe trauma impacts different people in different ways and different degrees based on the nature of your trauma and how you respond to it. And for me, like I said, it it impacted me in three compounding ways. One, I felt voiceless and powerless. And so many of the harrowing experiences I went through had to do with a larger animal overpowering me physically and silencing my voice in the process. Two, I felt profoundly alone and abandoned. And three, I felt like my experience and I didn't matter. And those tend to be the three biggest wounds left behind by trauma. One, voicelessness and powerlessness. Two, aloneness and abandonment. And three, devaluation of your worth as a human being. So using your personal story to help others is a perfect way to heal those three traumas because it helps you reclaim your sense of self in those three areas particularly. I healed and I reclaimed my voice, my sense of agency in my life. And I created a huge and very loving community around me through my writing, which healed my aloneness. 
And by having an impact and seeing that I was being of service in other people's journey, their own journey of healing and their own journey of empowerment, I started to feel like I truly do matter in this world. And not because of a role attached to, you know, someone else's direction, but through my own voice and my own heart and my own mind. And um, yeah, I started to create a new joy, a new sense of joy and life and a new path for myself. So you, in essence, as you've said before, became the author, not just of a book, but of your own life mm-hmm. and of your voice, Completely. of yourself. And and you actually, um, you had great success with that book. And uh, your second book is called Paramita, A Dystopian Matriarchy. Now, <laughs> the name is awesome. It's a great name. But Thank you. what is it about and what prompted you to write it? So I Am Yours came out in February 2019, and I had an amazing tour, national tour, throughout 13 different cities, and it lasted uh, about five months. We kept on adding more and more events to it and more keynote speaking events and then library events and bookstore events, things like that. It was wonderful. And then I was approached by a producer, a TV producer and film producer, who later on became a dear, dear friend of mine, Dara Resnick. She heard me on Cheryl Strayed's podcast, uh, Dear Sugars. She heard me talk about my story, and she reached out to me. She said that as a survivor of abuse herself, she had never heard anyone speak about it in such a concise and compelling way. And I had mentioned that I would a book that was going to come out in 2019. And this was, so by the way, the podcast came out in 2018. She asked if I wanted, what I wanted to do with it. And I said, my dreams are to make it into a screenplay. And she said, I would love to help you with it. So the latter half of 2019 was used on that. And we were going to do that and everything was going really beautifully. And then, I don't know if you know about this, but in 2020, we were all hit by something called the pandemic. Yeah, and it, <laughs> and it like that pesky you know, like, little virus, you know, pesky little side note in everyone's yeah. lives. So in March 2020, suddenly everything that I had worked for to build up to that point as a memoirist and as a screenwriter came to a halt, and as a keynote speaker came to a halt. And I had all of these speaking engagements and teaching engagements that were lined up for 2020 that were canceled overnight. And I was back to like $60 in my bank account, which I thought I had saved myself from. Um, And then my brain kicked into survival mode. And the amazing thing about discovering and cultivating my writing during a time that was so stark and dark and bleak is that I'm still able to write when things are stark and dark and bleak again. I don't need like a beautiful environment where it would like bluebirds singing at my windowsill and braiding my hair for me to feel safe enough and loved enough to write. I actually, it's like being thrown into that financial insecurity, well, poverty, to be frank, all over again, my survival mechanism kicked in and I woke up, I will, first I had an emotional breakdown and I FaceTimed my family and I said, this is what uh, financial trauma looks like. I am back to where I thought I would never be. 
And they were, they were like, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know, but tomorrow I'll wake up with an idea. And the next morning I woke up with the idea for Paramita. And it was April 6, 2020. I started writing the book. I had created a whole outline for it. I gave myself six months to write it because I also knew that stepping into the next stage of my life, I had already used up my past on one memoir and I didn't have any plans to write memoir again. I wanted to learn how to write fiction because I also knew that in the new chapter and future of my life, I wanted to find a partner and to have children or a family of some shape or form. And that requires privacy, meaning that memoir is no longer part of my career and future. So I needed to learn how to write a whole new genre and one that could be lucrative. And a very lucrative genre is dystopian fiction. So I gave myself all of these assignments in the midst of my emotional breakdown, and I woke up with this outline. And part of the reason I gave myself six months to write it is because I still have plans to be a mother one day. And as you know, moms don't have much time to write. And so I was like, you know, like gone are my easy breezy cover girl days. I want to learn how to write in a truncated uh, period of time because I'm yours. I gave myself a year to write the first draft and I was like, let's cut it in half. Let's see what we can do. It's a pandemic. Anything's possible, you know? And so I wrote Paramita uh, during the first six months of the pandemic and I was solo quarantined. I hadn't adopted my puppy as of that time. I hadn't met my partner. I was completely alone. And remember how in those first few months of the pandemic, we were all so terrified and we didn't know the we didn't know the details of the virus. So like none of us met up or left our pod. Right. We didn't Meaning, go like, out. I yeah, didn't see exactly. anyone. Yeah. I didn't see anyone for, I think three months. It was three months until I ventured out of my apartment for something other than going for a run in the woods. And I saw my parents like after the first three months of the pandemic, but I just devoted myself to writing. So that's how it came about. And that's what it prompted me to write it. And Paramita is the name of the nation formerly known as the United States of America. And half of Paramita, uh, the book, is set in 2050, and half of it is set in 2150. The 2050 uh, part of the novel is set in the USA, where we are now 30 years into the pandemic, all of our rights to body autonomy and the autonomy and agency to marry whomever we want and our access to healthcare, all of those rights have been overturned and taken away. And the president of the United States announces at the beginning of the book that when he is successfully elected for his second term, he will roll out something called the National Family Healthcare Initiative. In short, to nothing more, nothing less, which is uh, the details of that is that families with two children will be given government aid and financial assistance for free health care, education, uh, and subsidies for housing and food, whereas families without two children or with more or less than two children, they will not get those benefits. In short, they will be punished for it. So it's fascism packaged as healthcare, right? 
So this is the this is the terrain of the United States in 2050, and our main character Gaia is a mom of two kids, 15-year-old and 5-year-old, and happily married. And she is recruited by the United States president to come up with a life-saving vaccine, a universal vaccine to put an end to the three-decade pandemic of different viruses and subvariants. And once she successfully achieves that goal, she becomes the most powerful person in the entire world. And after seeing the world and its state, she decides to use her power to create a new country in the place of the United States. And this new country is called Paramita. Now, in 2100, 130 years in our future, now, basically, give or take a few, the main character is Era. Era is the granddaughter of Gaia. And Gaia is the ruling matriarch of Paramita. And Era is given a similar task as Gaia was 100 years ago. Era is given the task to discover a new vaccine to put an end to a new virus. And in the course of her research through Paramita, she starts to visit different districts. And as she starts to learn more about the history of Paramita, she realizes that perfection is impossible and power is never won kindly. She starts to learn the secrets of her grandmother's rise to power. And Paramita means perfection in Sanskrit. Oh, wow. And there's no such thing. That's, oh, I, that's, and now is that actually out or is that coming out? No. So it is with my agent right now, Jennifer Lyons, who is incredible. And we did two rounds of edits over the last couple of months. And I am hoping that it will go out to prospective publishers very soon. So that's in the offing. Like that's going to be happening. So literally I will have an, I will have an answer for you by the time this interview is published. I, that's fantastic. She and I have a meeting next week. I love that. And, you know, obviously there are going to be links in the show notes. If you look at your show notes with (laughs) links to Rima's website social media and to how you can get the first book but perhaps by the mm-hmm. time this is out there'll be links to maybe getting on a wait list for the second book or what have you but we're <laughs> going to make sure you know where to find all of this and thank you so thank that you so actually though is not sort of the end of the line with your new books because you're currently working on another book called women in flight correct Yes, I'm working on two other books right now. Uh, Woman in Flight is the one I mentioned to you. And then mm-hmm. Paramita has a sequel called Motherland. And so I have the beginning, I have the first chapter of Motherland already written to, um, mm-hmm. you know, to tease the palette of potential publishers. <laughs> and um, Woman in Flight is another one I'm working on now. And it's, it's very different from the others because I am yours and Paramita, they are hefty reads. They require a great amount of attention and bandwidth for the re- on the reader's behalf because it's very intricate, layered. It's very, both very philosophical. Um, they look into deep, dark corners of the human existence. And of course, because of who I am, there's, it's always about love. All of my books are about love no matter what. And Woman in Flight is... The way I describe it is it's like cotton candy and it goes down very easily and just melts on your tongue. 
And I see it as um, what I hope to be my commercial baby uh, that can be easily adapted into like a Netflix rom-com or a TV series. And it's about a 39-year-old woman who comes into an enormous inheritance from her recently deceased grandmother. She inherits $2 million after taxes. And she decides to radically change her life. She decides to end her relationship with her procrastinating boyfriend of seven years, who is procrastinating on asking her to marry him and to have a baby. And she decides to to leave the safety of what was known to head into the unknown. And she decides to take the money and go on a world tour to visit all the countries she had always wanted to visit, to scatter her grandmother's ashes, and that upon her return, she will use the remainder of the money to have a baby through IVF and a sperm donor. So it's not the money that radically changes her or her life. It's the realization that she has agency and choice. And choice lets a woman take flight. Nice. I, I want to read all of them. But <laughs> Thank you. Like, I really enjoy your thought process throughout each of these books and thinking about not just, you know, the writing and the crafting of them, but what is the experience on the end of the reader? And you're giving readers different experiences with each of these books, you know, whether it's contemplative, whether it's more of a fun, empowering read. I mean, they're all about empowerment, don't get me wrong, but I I really, you know, appealing to wide uh, and varied audiences on really the same topic so that you can get that message of resilience and women finding their voice out to even more people. And I, I like that that whole process. And right. you do, you also give back in some other really important ways that I just do not want to get off this podcast without bringing up. And one is that you're involved with a nonprofit that's called On the Inside. And can you just give us like a a brief overview? Like what's the mission and what is it that you do with your work with that? Uh, So On the Inside is a nonprofit that was founded by Nikki Weaver, who is a brilliant teacher and writer and activist and artist. She's a dear friend of mine. And On the Inside provides creative writing workshops for women in prison as well as writing and art supplies and and books. And the mission of the organization is to provide and promote healing, love, radical self-acceptance, and a path forward internally and hopefully beyond prison walls. The mission is also uh, to create a bridge between people on the inside and people on the outside of prison walls, hence the name, to erase that wall through art and writing because that's what art does. Art is a bridge. And the U.S. prison system is, oh, you and I have talked about this before, the U.S. prison system is so dehumanizing and so dehumanized, and it's focused on punishment, not it's healing also a big or business. Empower- mm-hmm, exactly. And it's focused on retention and, um, and punishment as opposed to healing or empowerment and freedom. But there are prisons, I will say that there are prisons that are trying to change this by working with nonprofits like ours, like nonprofits like On the Inside and providing opportunities for incarcerated folks that allow them 
to express themselves, to find comfort and community, and to find tools for reintegration and success in the larger world. And I think above and beyond all, for all human beings, the necessary component to healing and thriving in life is to believe we are worthy of love, to believe that we are lovable and that we have inherent personal value. And On the Inside provides this and so much more. It is a lifeline. And uh, we have our first book coming out soon. And it contains writing and art from many of the women inside the prisons who have participated in our creative workshops. So I sit on the board. And on the inside right now, we serve women in prisons in Oregon, Nebraska, Wyoming, and Missouri. And my goal is to expand our reach to all 50 states in the next five years. And I truly believe that we will hit that goal. And the work is so important. And I am in so much awe of Nikki, as well as Carolyn Cox, who is the co-facilitator of these workshops. Um, you need to have both of them on your podcast. I hope you will. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking that my mind is going, okay, a couple, yes. got a couple more they daughters to change here to Thank talk you. to. Thank you. I mean, yeah. I, 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 you know, you're an expert but on, on your podcast, but yes, please, they would be amazing. And, um, Actually, you know, I I have to tell you, it's not. I'm not an expert. I find daughters of change through other daughters of change. Uh, it's a network. Well, it's, that's how mm-hmm. you know. That's how it happens. Like minds, like souls, like hearts. You know. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And um, exactly, I'm so passionate about this work. And thank you for pointing out that all of the through line in all of my work and whatever format it takes is healing and empowerment because I believe like through that we are capable if you provide a person with tools for their own healing and empowerment you provide them with an entire uh, realm of new possibilities you know and and we'll talk about this more but I think a resilient life is the same as a joyful life yes right and to provide people with those with access to that is I think it's the most important, the most important service. Yeah. And it's such a wonderful, wonderful program. When when you were telling me about that, I like perked right up because it's, Mm -hmm. it is, it's so important. And uh, I mean, that's a whole, you know, (laughs) reentry and women in prison and that's a whole other podcast, but it's a beautiful thing that you're doing there. And, you know, you Mm -hmm. also speak with young people in middle is it middle school or middle school and high schools high schools and universities and universities okay mm-hmm. and so yes what is the message you know what is the message and the wisdom that you're speaking to these young people about and why is that conversation that you're having with them so important thank you so i am yours was adopted into the curriculum of four different high schools back in 2019 through a grant from the Oregon Board of Education. It was called an innovation grant. And so I was then asked to be part of a committee of high school writing and English teachers to create a syllabus using I Am Yours, uh, essentially to help, help our students learn how to use memoir, this very specific genre, as a tool for empowerment and using their voice and to find their resilience and power in the world. And so on the surface, 
I teach and I speak on resilience and the power that we each have by using our voices to change our inner and outer worlds. But what I love about this work is when you're in front of a group of students or, or a group of adults, there's, there are always necessary spin-offs based on each set of human beings I work with. And given our high school students and what they're going through with the pandemic mm -hmm. and then what they're going through in the nature of their teenage lives, like, you know, again, and lots of self-harming behaviors like anorexia, bulimia, all of that, I, I can pick up on who wants to ask a question and then the question beneath the question and the story behind the story. And so by you, it's almost like, you know, this, this book is like a Trojan horse that gets me into this room and gives me access to then asking them, what do you really want to talk about? What do you really want to ask me about? And then they'll say, well, you know, you write about finding like uh, suffering through self-hatred. Like, how did you find your way through that? And so we'll focus the entire period on talking about that and how to find self-love and hope in a world that conspires to take that away from us. Yeah, it's important. Um, and that, that is the privilege of this work, to be trusted with so much vulnerability, you know? Uh, and it's, it's my favorite to work with high school students and to, to be a humble messenger of the message they need at this very particular time in their lives. Mm -hmm. And especially since like, I remember it so vividly, feeling so... Um, so shrunken and alone in myself as my, my teenage self. And if I can interrupt one teenager's life by showing them that it gets better and that there is a path to self-esteem and confidence and that you can learn how to trust yourself and trust that you are worthy and worthy of love and to love yourself, then I've done a good job in this lifetime. But I always share it in the context of my own story, which I think that's how people are able to absorb it more easily. I make sure to mention that I went through 30 years of my life thinking that I wasn't good enough to be the architect of my own life, that I, my voice wasn't good enough to be used professionally or to, for, for me to even use it in my personal life. And my radical shift, the turning point in my life was when I realized that was a false narrative that I had swallowed. And I always experience a lot of girls in the room, their ears prick up when I say that. And, and I, and I say, and I kind of like try to make it like a joke and, a, or, or to say it with humor and candidness that, you know, um, girls are told that we, that like our voices don't matter or that we can't be the leaders in a situation. But, um, what if we flip the narrative? What if you are good enough to be the author of your life? What would that look like? Yeah, it's a, such an important uh, message for young people of that mm -hmm. age because it's such, oh, it's such a hard time. I mean, those years, even under the best of circumstances, yeah. are, you know, mm -hmm. such a tough journey and so vulnerable at that age. And, you know... Just so many different yeah. messages coming at them from so many different places. And now we add social media on top of that. And, oh, my yeah. gosh. And which, I mean, social media is all about monetizing your physical appearance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, which takes teenagehood 
to a whole like new level of scrutiny and mm -hmm. competition and insecurity. Yeah. And it's so crazy. Right. And so to, to let them know that like, there's so much more to you than what lives on Instagram or what is being monetized on Instagram based on your photo. Um, because when I was growing up, we didn't have Instagram. We didn't have any of that, oh, you yeah. know? And so, and it was still hard, right? right? It was still hard being a teenager without that. Right. And, 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 I, and my career as an actress and, you know, as like someone who would model on the side is what compounded my insecurities. But then now every single person, you don't have to be professionally in those fields. You're already an actress yeah, and a model I mean, on Instagram. Yeah. So they're being subjected to all of that, that, that intense scrutiny. I, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so to really give them a gentle reminder that you are so much more than your Instagram feed. I mean, ooh, there's, that's like a yeah. whole day's work right there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know? Yeah. At, at least. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things um, we've talked about that you've mentioned several times during the podcast is resilience and the importance of resilience. So I'm going to ask you a question and then I want to mm. actually talk for a second about uh, something else uh, that you have, a toolkit, if you will. Are we scientifically designed for resilience, do you feel? I believe that we are. I believe our bodies and our spirits are designed for resilience and that we are innately resilient unless something terrible has gone awry. In the same way that we are born with a voice and we lose it through the challenges and traumas in life. But we are born with resilience, we are born with a voice. Because if you look at a healthy body and mind, it has the inherent knowledge to persevere and to heal itself and to become stronger than its original form. And what I mean by this is, if you take a patch of skin or bone that has been torn or broken, in the healing process, the cells in that area will regroup and grow scar tissue that is stronger than the original skin or bone. The scar tissue will be more durable than the original tissue. It will be more resilient because it went through adversity and healing. And the same goes for our spirits. We are designed for resilience, healing, and growth. And the only way we bypass resilience, healing, and growth is by making a decision yeah. to be a victim. Yeah. Great analogy, too, mm -hmm. about the scar tissue. That's a really good analogy. Thank you. I mean, that's why I often talk about speaking and living from the scar and not yeah. the wound. Because our scars are stronger than what caused it. If we were to live in the, in the place of mm -hmm. victimhood and, and woundedness, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. more powerful than if the person that caused the wound, if you don't allow them to have the power over you. Yeah. Yeah. People only have as much power as we allow them to yeah, in our narrative. Exactly. That was one mm -hmm. of the most important lessons I learned in my 20s mm -hmm. was, you know, people yeah. can do all kinds of things to you, but you get to choose how you react to that, right? Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. It's the fundamental yeah, aspect of, of life yeah, and of it really is. So mm -hmm. tell us about the five... Pillars of resilience. <laughs> That's a new framework I'm working on, and I'm hoping to present it at uh, an event or, or speaking engagement this year. And so the five pillars apply to resilience, uh, to creating resilience, not only in ourselves, but in our relationships. 
And the number one, the first pillar is accept the adversity and flip the narrative. So stop fighting it. Change your point of view from a victim mindset to an empowering mindset and decide that once and for all, that this inflection point in your story isn't going to take you off trajectory because our life is one trajectory, good, bad, ugly, beautiful. It is all part of our story. So once we embrace the adversity and decide that we're not going to let it destroy us, but we will use it to nurture our growth, this is the first critical step. And I think a lot of people get stuck on this step for years because they keep fighting what has happened to them. But acceptance and flipping the narrative in your favor is the first necessary step to resilience. In Buddhism, we say pain is a constant, suffering is a choice. Number two, the second pillar, is look for hidden gifts. Once you've truly accepted that this event is part of your story and you're going to use it in an empowering way, look for the opportunities and hidden gifts within the adversity. So this is critical. And we need to metabolize the trauma or the conflict so that we keep the wisdom and discard the toxins. Right? And I, I always love using that verb uh, in the context of trauma, metabolize. You know, keep what is good, keep what is useful and discard what is not useful at all. Number three, turn pain into power. This happens by incorporating the event into your identity in an empowering way, by using it to prove that nothing can destroy you or steal your joy or your ability and capacity to love. Which brings us to number four, which is turn pain into purpose. That's when you incorporate the event into your trajectory in an empowering way by using it to guide your life's service in the larger world. And then number five is empower others yes. and teach what you've lived. Raise others, lift others, provide them with the personal and professional tools, networking resources, etc., that you've gained by living your purpose and serving your calling so that they can too. And so by this way, you take something that is awful and you turn it into something majestic. And there, there's much more to it, but I don't want to give all my secrets. No, you can't give it away because you come care, you speak. <laughs> Thank you. So may I add that Rima is a phenomenal keynote speaker. So anybody listening <laughs> that's planning an event. Thank you. An event or a seminar or a webinar or a reading, uh, you know, a reading of, from one of her books. So all kinds of things that you can connect with Rima about. So um, we're going to talk a little <laughs> bit more about that. But I, I wanted to also just make the observation that, um, you know, the last two pillars there, particularly turning pain into purpose, is quite a common mm -hmm. thread uh, with the Daughters of Change that I talked to. And I, I noticed that in you right away. So I just, I wanted to say that. Uh, and Rima, before I ask you the last two questions I ask every daughter of change, what are you most proud of at this point? I mean, there's going to be more, but sitting here right now, what are you most proud of? Well, the long answer is I'm very proud of my relationships and how loving and intentional and safe and fulfilling they are. I'm very proud of my, my work too, for the same reasons. And the short answer is um, I'm proud of my my resilience and love, you know, in, in life and in my art. I, and I will always choose love over fear, and, which is how I define resilience. And I think that is like the secret to creating incredible relationships is 
An incredible, artistic, beautiful life or a life that feels like a masterpiece is to always choose love over fear. So I'm proud of that. And that's something to be very proud of. And I mean, that right there could probably answer this next question, but I know you have more up your sleeve. So I'm going to ask you anyway, what wise words do you have for other daughters of change? Hmm. Uh, Never underestimate the power of your voice or how lovable you are and worthy of love. And never underestimate the purpose for which you were born to fulfill. I believe anything is possible through self-believe, through love, through choosing love over fear. That's that's really... Ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of to tie this back to the beginning of our conversation about fear, because a lot of people will say like, well, how do you choose love over fear when sometimes like your entire existence or that day or that month seems so fearful? I've always found that service overrides fear. Whenever I put myself in the path of service, of serving someone else, my fear vanishes because I'm attaching my destiny to the destiny of someone else and to helping them. And my love for this other person, whether it's a colleague or a stranger or a loved one, that will override my fear that I feel in the moment. So service overrides fear. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. I mean, service provides a lot of things personally. I I feel that I'm not saying people do Mm -hmm. it because they want to get something back, but you do, you get it back a hundredfold. Um, But service overriding fear, I hadn't actually articulated that in my mind. So thank you. That's, that's true. And it's a great, it's, it's very true. The minute you said it, I'm like, yeah, that's, makes sense. And how do people listening, Rima, um, connect with you or connect you with other people or other things or support your efforts? Like how can the listeners help you on your journey that's helping so many others? Thank you so much. I, uh, well, I mean, I'm very easy to find. I'm at Rima Zaman on Instagram and my website is myname.com, remazaman.com. And I know you'll have that all in the show notes. All that, yeah. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way you can support my work, I mean, there are the traditional ways, of course, you know, to buy my book that's already out there or to get excited about my future ones. But honestly, I think we help each other when we help ourselves and we put ourselves in the path of love. So if you have gained anything from this podcast that has been in service of your self-esteem or confidence that allows you to take a braver step tomorrow toward your dreams or accomplishing something that has been very difficult for you, you have already supported me. Well, thank you. That's, you know what? I think that's one of the nicest, <laughs> kindest things any, or most loving things that anybody has said at the end of that. Not that everybody isn't wonderful, but that was that was special. And so, Rima, I'm going to ask you a favor. Would you read something for us to end this beautiful conversation with a big, positive, beautiful period? I would yeah. love to. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay, thank you. And thank you for 
this. This was such a delightful and life-changing conversation. Thank you. And I know it's not the last because you and I have connected for a reason. So there will be more collaboration of some sort in our future. I, Mm -hmm. I know that. Absolutely. There is correctness in this alignment. All right. So I am going to do something I have not yet done at all, which is I'm going to read a few pages of Paramita. And what I mean is this, I've never shared any of this publicly because like I said, it is still, um, it hasn't been published yet. So this is Paramita, a dystopian matriarchy, book one in the Paramita Saga. Chapter one, era 2150 in Paramita. The sun, the breath, the heart are health. Thank you. My eyes open and on cue, the curtains rise, letting sunlight pour onto my bed through floor-to-ceiling glass. Outside, a clear, freshly laundered sky. The last dregs of a dream, of a woman singing, slip away from my grasp. She is calling me, but I cannot decipher the lyrics. I don't know who she is. Suddenly, she stops singing and her voice pulls me awake. Era, what you have lost will find you. I gasp and look around, her voice so clear that I am certain she is in the room. Nothing. No one. Only me. Strange. I get out of bed and head for the bathroom. As I wash my face, the sensory pad beneath my feet calculates my body temperature, weight, heart rate, and other vitals to be immediately recorded in Parameter Center Stream Serenity 2.0. The data flashes along the right margin of the mirror, followed by the words, Happy Birthday, Era. Today will be a perfect day. I can't help but smile grateful that regardless of the weather, occasion, or what I may dream, the mirror's programming assures me every morning that today will be a perfect day. In Paramita, imperfection is as exotic as the rare storm, as criminal as weakness, as extinct as disease. As if conjured to illustrate these precise ideals, an image of Ray, epitome of masculine beauty, shimmers through the mirror with the words, Incoming call. Ray. I tap the mirror to accept the call and his image is replaced by a live feed of his smiling face. Sunlight in human form. Ray is already dressed in our customary head-to-toe white, showered hair neatly combed, his morning smoothie raised in a toast. Happy birthday, beautiful. He takes an enthusiastic swig of the green concoction. The sight of him alerts my equalizer embedded in the back of my neck to shoot a heady jolt of dopamine and adrenaline mimicking what was once called the butterflies. In the past, the dizzying mix of hormones was dictated by the body itself and would often flood one's bloodstream at the most inappropriate moments, leading to mayhem and disorderly conduct. How vile. But now, my body responds to Ray's image with just the correct dose of enthusiasm. Ray is a stunning specimism, genetically designed by Parameter's coders to be my match and I, his, in every manner. Every guardian has a counterpart, and he is mine. Born on the identical birthday, we have been schooled side by side for 18 years to develop an emotional and intellectual bond built on our genetic and social compatibility. This year's birthday is especially significant. Today, we will learn our calling. <laughs> 